On October 7, 2023, Hamas invaded Israel, striking soft targets, killing civilians, and sparking a conflict that has left thousands dead. As tensions in the region escalate, the rest of the world is left wondering, what happens next? Our guest today is the founder and director of First Fruits of Zion, Boaz Michael, who's here from Jerusalem to give us the latest. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Well, welcome back to Messiah Podcast. We have Boaz Michael here on the podcast today. He's in Jerusalem, and I'm sure, Boaz, that everyone who's a longtime follower or a new follower or a constituent of any kind is is wondering and has been wondering how are you? How is your family? The rest of the First Fruits of Zion Israel team and their families, is everybody okay? Thank God everybody is okay. Uh, we are on day 12 of our current war. Honestly, it feels like it's been a year. Uh, it came on October 7th, and these past uh, 12 days have been just incredible in terms of how how slow time has moved, the emotions that we've all had on different levels, and the, the thought of continued threat in terms of, of where will our life be in two weeks from now. But thank God everyone on our staff as well. We have staff in Israel that lives uh, in the south, that lives in Jerusalem. Obviously, our families have been affected differently. Jerusalem has had missiles coming in. We've had alarms. We've had to go to the bomb shelter multiple times. But nothing at all like what they're experiencing in the south. So for our listeners who may not have the entire context for this conversation... Maybe just tell us a little bit about what, what's been happening over there for the past few weeks. Because over here in the States where I am, I'm not sure we get all the news. And then sometimes what we do get, like we'll hear something and then half an hour later it'll be retracted. And then, you know, half half the people don't believe the, the, the retraction. So there's just a whole bunch of stuff floating around. And I think a lot of it is misinformation and disinformation. It's causing a lot of confusion. You live there. So like, what have you seen? What have you heard? Well, first of all, I really appreciate you using the terms misinformation and disinformation. I actually think this is probably the most significant of the battle we face. We're recording this just in the shadow of President Biden's visit here to Jerusalem, the supposed Israeli bombing of, of a Baptist hospital in Gaza. And, you know, the internet explodes with, quote, 900 Palestinians being killed by Israeli bombs hitting this this hospital. But thank God, I mean, to the credibility and integrity of, of uh, President Biden, you know, he's already said that this bomb was not a result of, of is, Israel's um, air defense. But that rumor, that that misinformation, that disinformation, it's out there. People will continue to believe it. We're, we're in a, a world today where there are still people that deny the Holocaust. When, when information comes out that fits people's narratives, they're going to continue to propagate it, even when they find that it's not true. Yeah, it will never go away. Yep. So it's there. It's a stain on Israel, although we are innocent in this particular situation. But honestly, this is a tactic that 
is not just exclusive to Hamas. You know, a few years ago when we were seeing the terrible bombings and atrocities in Syria, we saw the same type of trickster type stuff of like, you know, a hospital's been bombed and, you know, mothers carrying babies. Well, the babies turn out to be dolls and, you know, all kinds of different things to try to sway the public opinion, which I think in the era of the internet and information, Twitter, X, uh, Facebook, Israel's good standing within the world. I think the war that we're facing is not just here on the ground, but it's it's in the uh, the interwebs and it's on social media platforms and it's it's ugly and it's 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 going to be hard and difficult to overcome and win that war. Yeah, yeah, you know, man- manufacturing a, a pretext for horrible violence is uh, a, an age-old art, but I think the internet has made it a lot more efficient, and you can you can get things moving a lot faster. You can get lies lies get legs a lot faster. So you're there as an eyewitness. You know, you know a lot of people. You've been there for quite a while. You have contacts everywhere. Maybe we can get some some reliable. Like, what are the sort of the just the facts? What has what really happened? in the past 12 days. So we are going to go through some facts because I think it's important to kind of outline those. But honestly, Jacob, this isn't my world of, of expertise. And when I say facts, you know, I'm giving information that I've been, that I've read in different sources. I'm not, uh, you know, an eyewitness per se. We are on the ground. We have had personal experiences and we have people and friends that are engaged, you know, very heavily in this situation. So I'll recap that for you. But before I do that, I want to give a perspective to our audience that could potentially kind of help shape the significance of what Israel has experienced. So uh, the terrorist-related atrocity that happened in the United States was 9-11. You know, on that day, we had um, planes in the sky uh, controlled by terrorists that had already given up the idea of of life they they went into this with prepared for death as did all the hamas terrorists that went into israel and and perpetrated the terror upon our people that day on october 7th but in 2001 uh september 11th 2001 the population in the united states was 285 million people our population in israel today is 9 million people now if we take those same percentages with 3,000 Americans losing their lives on that day, the same percentage, just to give a sense of, of impact that it's had in our world, in our life here, that would have uh, equated to 63,330 Americans that died on that day of September 11th, 2001. Wow. Like as a percentage of the population. Yes, exactly. And that's what happened here in Israel. Our small country had a significant attack. We'll talk about that as we go forward. But in some instances, everybody knows somebody. My son-in-law, you know, he works in tech in Tel Aviv. One of his coworkers, five of her best friends were at the dance party in Berry, and they were all murdered. And we, you know, know others through friends and family that have been impacted. So our entire society here has been impacted. So um, here's my summary. On uh, Shabbat morning of October 7th, the terrorist organization, now they are a recognized terrorist organization, but to emphasize something as a reminder to our audience is that they are also the elected government in Gaza. Yeah. 
So they're not just a terrorist organization. They are appointed by the people of Gaza to lead, to govern, to make decisions on behalf of Gaza. So they were the elected government of Gaza. They breached uh, Israel's border with apparently around 1,500 terrorists. Once the terrorists breached the walls, the fencing, and went in to do their destruction, what Israel is now reporting and showing through video and those types of things is that common Gazians, so the Palestinians that live in Gaza, they also came through the fence and they were also participants in the kidnapping of Israelis and bringing them back into uh, Gaza. So it wasn't just the terrorist group. It was also part of the population that said, hey, the gate's open. Let's go get some Israelis, bring them back here and use them um, as human shields, use them for propaganda, use them to do our will, so to speak. Mm. So they went into Israel and they attacked a number of kibbutzim and moshavim throughout the southern uh, um, I guess it would be the western border of Israel that that aligns up with the Gaza border going down uh, south. And to this date, over 1,300 Israelis have been known to be murdered in the attack, and close to 200 were taken captive. So our Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, uh, later that day, he uh, made a declaration of war. Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, our Israeli Air Force has been doing uh, missions after missions uh, into Gaza, bombing strategic locations of points in which the terrorists would uh, launch missiles, known areas in which tunnels exist, those types of things. And over 300,000 reservists have been called up to stand on the borders of Israel, not just the Gaza border, because that's not what we're singularly concerned with. That's our kind of point to focus. But Our reservists have been stationed on all of the borders throughout the country, hoping to dissuade any type of multi-border attack from the enemies that surround us. And then, of course, our security agencies of Shin Bet and Shabak have continued to capture, because one of the big concerns that was floating around Israel for the the days after the, the, the October 7th was that there were still terrorists in the country. Yeah, And they were just kind of waiting, and they were sleeper cells, so to speak, and that they would continue to do their terrorism throughout the week. So I think at this point, we've captured or killed the majority of those remaining terrorists that came in over the Gaza border that day. Hopefully, that will lead to a a, a higher measure of safety for you guys over there. Um, You mentioned Hamas, and I haven't been following the Israeli-Palestinian relations or or conflict really closely. I do remember, however, when I was growing up, in the news all the time was Yasser Arafat and the PLO. And it seems like every time we had a new president, the PLO and the Israelis would get together and there would be some kind of peace summit or talks. And there's, you know, we had the, there were the Oslo Accords and everyone was sort of optimistic that something would happen at Camp David. And there just seems to have been an expressed desire on both sides that if only we could get the terms exactly right, then everybody could live in peace and sort of recognize each other. And, um, you know, it seems pretty different now. And I get the impression that part of this is is that Hamas is maybe not interested in peaceful dialogue. Who are these guys? Where did they come from? Right. So first of all, um, I'm glad you kind of go back uh, a bit uh, with your question in terms of history. 
Yasser Arafat, he was the the inventor, so to speak, of what I would call modern day terrorism, you know, killing innocents. Now, I think that most Israelis at this point in terms of time and history probably look back and look at him as probably an incredibly savvy individual that kind of hid his, you know, he, you know, I don't think he ever did, but let's say he repented from terrorism. He entered into normalization talks with Israel. He met with, you know, the presidents of Israel and shook hands with Israeli prime ministers and all of those types of things, even though he had, you know, blood on his hands from, you know, hundreds and th- potentially thousands of innocent individuals. Yeah. So we'll come back to the origin story, but starting with Hamas, Hamas was founded on December 10th in 1987. And this is actually kind of a, a breakoff group, or maybe a better word is they are rooted in another terrorist organization called the Muslim Brotherhood. So the Hamas is a subset or a breakoff from the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization. Hamas is a terrorist organization. So Hamas attempts to establish Islamic rule in its self-proclaimed territories and uses acts of violence or violent terrorism against its opponents to establish their goals. So Hamas gained popularity amongst the Palestinians uh, here in Israel in the 1990s during the time of the Second Intifada. These were gruesome times of terrorism here in Israel when, you know, buses were exploding and just random acts that kind of kept our society constantly, constantly on edge. Um, And they became the ruling party of Gaza. So this goes back. I'm emphasizing that they were the elected governmental party of Gaza in 2007. And Hamas itself has very little opposition in the Arab world with the exception of Egypt. And this is important. So Egypt has rejected and tried to root out the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. But Egypt is no friend of Hamas because Hamas and and the Muslim Brotherhood are of the same ilk. When we look at a map and we see that Gaza also has a border to the Sinai Peninsula, so Egypt, what the world doesn't hear about is all of the times in which Hamas and Egypt are kind of going back and forth, Mm. you know, bombs going into Egypt, border closing and all those types of things, because Egypt wants nothing to do with Hamas either, because Hamas would just as much want to destroy the government and and security of Egypt as it, well, probably not just as much, but it, it has the intention of unsettling the Egyptian government just as much as it does uh, the Israeli government. Yeah. Uh, so they have uh, Hamas is at odds in our region with Egypt, Jordan, and the United Emirates. And within Israel, Hamas, it's opposed or it has opposition with the Fatah, which is the the secular wing of the uh, Palestinian Authority. And they're more in the West Bank, right? You have Hamas in Gaza and Fatah's over there in uh, in the West Bank. Yeah, so the Fatah is uh, kind of the ruling, so to speak, authority within Judea Samaria, also known as the West Bank. And then you have this battle kind of ideologically between ISIS and Hamas. And of course, the Taliban and ISIS and all of these types of terrorist groups that have this interest in ultimately establishing some form of, of caliphate. So yeah, we hear those names and we think they're all the same thing, but they don't, hardly any of them like each other either though, right? 
No, it's 100% correct. So going back to your original question of like, hey, when I was a kid, all I ever heard about was Yasser Arafat, the PLO, whatever happened to him. So FADA is now the PA, formerly PLO, the Palestinian Nationalistic uh, Political and Military Organization that was originally founded by Yasser Arafat. The word FADA itself is a an acronym. It's it's switched around. It's backwards, but it's an acronym, meaning the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. And interesting enough, the word FADA in which which is why they probably switched it around in Arabic means uh, conquest or opening. So the opening of new horizons or conquest. Hmm. And that was established in 1994. And this was an outcome of the Oslo Peace Accords uh, between Israel and, and Palestine at the time. That's probably what you remember. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Bill Clinton that was standing on the stage and watching uh, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin uh, shake hands and enter into this peace accord that is still there and with, I guess, the hopes of some would one day be fully realized. So that's the brief overview of the landscape. But going back to an earlier statement you made in terms of they don't get along with one another, from my perspective, there's this whole family fight, so to speak, that's defined in two broad categories, which is the Shiite and the Sunni. Mm. Now, these guys don't like each other, and they would kill one another. But one thing they do have is a common goal of destruction and murder and hate is... Jews and the state of Israel. Wow. It's hard to have a, you know, the classic military or diplomatic idea of the enemy of my enemy as my friend doesn't really work here because more than they hate each other, they hate the Israelis and, and the Jewish people. Yeah. Which you actually see in some ways, because uh, there's another category that, that just came to mind when you mentioned that. We have Arab Israelis. Yeah. And you know, there are people that would love to integrate and uh, enjoy the, the safety, the peace, the structure, the integrity of a society, the opportunity to, to prosper, grow, build businesses, have families, go to schools, be educated, all those types of things. And they do. We have, we have so many interactions on a daily basis with just amazing, wonderful Arabs in, you know, day-to-day -day life here. The picture that people may have outside the world is that there's, you know, animosity, and there's not. I mean, you walk down a path and you walk by a Palestinian family and they have kids and you start talking, kids start playing, you go to restaurants, you go to the doctor, and your doctor who's making you well is an Arab. All these types of things that are taking place. And at times, those people feel under threat. They're, they're torn because, you know, on one hand, they want the peace and the security that Israel represents. But at the same time, you know, Hamas would have no problem or any terrorist group would have no problem, you know, bringing pain into their life because they would look at them as Zionist sympathizers. So, you know, you have an incredibly, incredibly complex and difficult situation. That sounds like a real rat's nest to try to navigate. I mean, diplomatically, militarily, the more context you have for this, the more you realize how impossible it seems to bring any sort of resolution to this situation, at least at long term. So October 7th, and, um, I, you know, I didn't realize this until we, you told me offline. And in, and in fact, um, you said that on your way to the bomb shelter on that day, you spoke briefly with a guy who who's old enough to remember 
and he said this it was it's been exactly 50 years since this the beginning of the Yom Kippur war and that's kind of striking is there a reason why the uh, the enemies of Israel keep choosing holidays to attack is it just to spite you or is there like a tactical reason or what well i th- i think i think both uh, that actually was really a, a remarkable thing it was our first time down in the bomb shelter so we live in a complex of four shared units and we share one uh, bomb shelter amongst our four families and you know the the first sirens sound at 8:20 8:30 in the morning we all run down to the bomb shelter they come to the bomb shelter you know we're all kind of just shocked and you know concerned and my neighbor um out of the blue just says it was 50 years ago to the day that the Yom Kippur war started now the Yom Kippur war started on October 6th 1973 our war was October 7th so there's a little bit of difference but you know if you think Jewishly you know our days actually start in the night so uh, you know maybe they did start on the same exact day but when he said that to our families gathered there everybody it was like no one had thought of that no one had even considered that he, and as i said he is he was old enough to where he was either here or he was participating in uh the war himself it was just like wow this is something serious mm. this is a big big deal so over the next 4 to 5 hours we were called down via sirens mm-hmm. to the bomb shelter we had had our grandchildren with us this is the first time in their life they're experiencing sirens bomb shelter concern fear all those types of things so on a personal level we experienced trauma but nothing and i i don't want to relate any form of trauma that we received compared to what they were receiving in the south when we started seeing throughout the day the images my son uh, serves in the military and there's a Jewish law that essentially says if there's war devout Jews can get on their phones and start you know hearing about being called up and those types of things we're not going to be you know this isn't 1973 anymore yeah you know we're getting our soldiers getting them in their cars getting them to base getting them to protect our people mm-hmm. so as as we started realizing the magnitude of what was taking place it was just sobering and you know our concern grew greatly throughout the day so what we learned and what was sad what's the saddest one of the saddest components of this is that hamas their objective wasn't to attack our military Mm. they attacked women children families and you know we we're doing this on a podcast but you know to see some of the images that came out of you know, Hamas terrorists walking through our southern cities, you know, casually walking up to doors, knocking on doors, knocking down doors, going into homes, murdering families in homes, just methodically one after the next. It is, um, it's, you know, I don't, I think the word war, I, yeah, I think the word war crime is such a, such a wrong term to use. This is pure evil evil in its most manifested form and to see the ability of humanity to function like that is just it's it's just absolutely terrifying so you know everything here everybody's asking the question how in the heck did israel 
allow this to happen. Israel is like the most advanced uh, nations in the world in terms of our uh, military awareness. We have to be. We're surrounded by hundreds of millions of of Arabs, different countries, different tribes, all with the same intention, which is to remove, I don't want to say Israel, I want to use the term Zionistic Israel off of the map. Yeah. Yeah, Mossad in particular is is legendary. Even the people who hate Israel give props to Mossad for being a, you know, a top-tier intelligence agency. And I have heard a lot of people uh, positing various not quite credible uh, reasons why Hamas was able to to avoid communications intercepts and so forth while they were planning this thing. Because this would have this is this would have taken a quite a bit of planning, I would think, over a long period of time. Yeah, they they say now it was like two years of time that only five people knew about the operation. All of communications regarding the operation were done on pen and ink by you know paper, no electronic transmissions. Mm. There were training exercises that were kind of like dummy exercises, all kind of independent and uh, sporadic. But when the call came to do the actual incursion into Israel. You know, all the units had been formed under the the auspices of like these trainings that were done, and it was it was incredibly well coordinated, which is why they attribute the coordination back to Iran in terms of of it having to be a, a you know something bigger than just Hamas. Mm. But basically, you know, they took a cue. If you've been watching or aware of much of the the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine, yeah. The Ukrainians have absolutely dominated aspects of the war using a drone that you can buy on the market. You know, they fly over a little battalion of Russians and somehow they've enabled it to drop a single grenade down from the sky into that group and it kills four or five Russians. But the Ukrainians have used that public technology to great advancement of in the war. Mm. So Hamas basically uh, deployed that idea. And Israel has like uh, massive cameras along the border to watch activity, to be aware of when, you know, people are, are forming or coming, potentially terrorists coming into Israel. Yeah. So there was a coordinated attack. Everything was simultaneous. They drew, flew these drones up. And you, you can see footage here of the drone kind of flying, it has a camera on it dropping these little simple grenades onto those cameras. So 35 or so cameras were destroyed simultaneously by these drones. At the same time, they started launching 1,500 rockets into Israel. So what Israel is thinking, oh, this is a typical Hamas attack. They're throwing these bombs at us. And at the same time, they dropped the bomb on the cameras is when they blew open the wall and they flooded into Israel. So all of this was timed at the same exact time. And when you're talking about Gaza, you have a, you know, first of all, Israel in itself is very small, but you have the Gaza border. And really, literally, in some instances, right on the other side of that wall is a Jewish city, is a Moshav, is a kibbutz. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of like, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour to get to your destination. You're literally in that city within a minute. This took place at 6.30 in the morning, so everybody's still sleeping. And that's how they were able to kill so many so rapidly because 
you know, we were unprepared and it was so coordinated and so precise that that's how they did the damage that they did initially. So I think our listeners are probably well aware of what Israel's response has been. That's all anyone's talking about on the news is, is, uh, what Israel's been up to for the past week and a half. Yeah. And we're, we're kind of unsure here about like what the intention, I mean, there's so many, you know, when we talk as a family, when I talk to my sons and my sons-in-laws, we have like, everybody has their own theory of what, what the intentions are. As far as what Hamas was trying to accomplish or? Well, no, in terms of like what, how Israel's response, what is it, what's an intention of Israel's response? So, you know, I have one son that says, oh, they're going to, completely destroy and annihilate North Gaza and turn that into like a non-militarized buffer zone. Hmm. Well, he said, okay, that makes sense. And then some of the conspiracies go far beyond that, which I don't want to start any conspiracies. So we'll just kind of, we'll, we'll keep it within the family, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it is very, to see this coming. I mean, part of the corollary of that is it's very difficult to see what's coming next. And, um, you know, everyone's got an opinion about it uh, to the point where I'm sick of hearing about it. You know what I mean? Like I'm sick of hearing people's opinions. Every time I go anywhere to try to get information or facts, all I'm getting is here's how this, here's how this person reacts to that person's reaction to someone else's, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's takes all the way down, hot takes all the way down. Um, but at least at the, uh, like officially, you know, it looks like Europe and 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 the West, you know, the United States of America are, are in full support of Israel. And then you have, you know, of course, the Arab world, which is is cheering on the Palestinians, won't do anything to help them or like let them into their countries as refugees or anything like that. But you know, they're, they're uh, you know rooting for them. And you know, of course, Hezbollah is saying, you know, any 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 minute now, we're gonna open up a second front and. Um, you know, saying it is one thing. No one knows what, if they're going to do it. But that's sort of what worries me. Like, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night, you know, seeing this develop into some sort of a wider or, or like a regional conflict. That scares me. So I'm sort of over here doom scrolling. Like, that's my, my feelings about this. It's just with all the uncertainty and, you know, knowing you guys and, and other people over there and just, um, you know, I, I'm losing probably two or three hours of sleep every night. Um, just because I can't fall asleep, but I, so I don't know, is that, you know, I can see you on the camera and you're, you're kind of smiling and I sense, I, I mean, I'm sensing kind of a general confidence and optimism. Is that sort of the spirit on the ground over there in Israel? Overall, I would say yes. We had a plumber come today to fix something in our home and he, I asked him how he was doing and he said, you know, it's, he said, this is incredibly, uh, incredible. It's incredibly difficult, but we will win. Hmm. And again, you know, I've not served in any wars. I, when I came in the nineties, I tried to get into the army that didn't work out the way I hoped. Um, with those forearms, they wouldn't let you into the IDF. That's the thing, Jacob, you know, I had my interview, I had my, my psychological test and then they did the physical test. And after the physical test, they said, ah, oh, you don't, you, we don't want you. No way. I've lived with that my entire life. Like what is wrong? <laughs> What what is wrong with me? <laughs> what did they what did they see? <laughs> they didn't tell you. Oh man. But uh I would say here it's great concern. It's what can I do? Mm-hmm. What can we do? How can I help? How can I serve? Everybody's attempting to do something. 
we worked, uh, we oversee a, a guest house here in Jerusalem. Okay. And we worked with a, uh, an organization here in Israel called Levachad, which is managing or matching up families from the south because they're evacuating all the different kibbutzim and moshavim from the south, and they're placing them in homes. So it's kind of like a Airbnb type thing for matching families with homes. So we've had this family come in, the home next door to us, a large a Hasidic family, Breslov uh, family, and it's been incredible. It's been such a, not a, I won't say healing. We didn't need healing, but it's been such a point of joy for us to see the peace, the shalom, the smiles, the laughter, listening to them in the garden, talking as a family, being in a safe place, and then connecting with their kids. I mean, it's a large family. There are other children that are married and have children or also have been placed in Jerusalem. So every day, the entire family comes over to this house. There's probably like, I've lost count, 25, 30 people over there every day, laughing, sharing meals. And the mother asked if we could help give the kids projects to help in a process of, of healing, of therapy. So my neighbor and I have a, we share a workshop, a wood workshop together. So I've been working with the youngest boy, he's 12 years old, and building him a, a stender, a prayer stender, teaching him how to use saws, measure. I've been learning a whole new set of uh, Hebrew vocabulary throughout the process. We've had a good time, but now apparently everybody in the whole uh, Hasidic community uh, that they're from wants a stender. So I might be coming, uh, I might be in the stender business here moving forward. What's a stender again? It's a personal prayer stand. It's different than a podium that is very stationary and not movable. A stender gives you the ability to kind of like have some flex and be able to daven with it. Oh yeah, you pick up a little side job as a woodworker. <laughs> yeah, so everyone in our neighborhood knows that they're there. Everyone is coming and saying, can I give you food? Can I help you? Do you need an extra mattress? You know, how can we help you? Now this is a family that does not fit into our neighborhood. They are a Breslov Hasidic family ultra-Orthodox. Our neighborhood is, I would at best categorize it as modern Orthodox. It's a mixture between modern Orthodox and secular. Hmm. A lot of the secular Jews have historically had animosity towards those types of Hasidic Jews. Yeah, And to see them all kind of coming together and unifying is something that is actually happening throughout all of Israel. The religious don't serve in our military. But the religious are performing one of the most significant parts of this current war. Really? It's the religious Jews, the Hasidic Jews that are going in, collecting the dead, burned, raped, dismembered bodies, trying to put them back together, trying to identify them, trying to give them dignity in death. And the general Israeli population sees that, and they say they are serving in a meaningful and probably the most gruesome and intense way. Now, we have come through, which I'm sure also was highlighted on American uh, media or world media, because people want to see Israel fail. Yeah, They rejoice when they see Israel failing. So over the, over the, the past few months, our government has been going through a battle in terms of justice reform. Mm. I don't want to get into the details of that. I do have my opinions on that. But that has divided our society. In fact, one of the things that was so concerning to our society was that during this justice reform thing, you saw 
this incredible thing that's never happened before where people were saying, we're no longer going to serve in the army. We're no longer going to serve in our reserve duty capacities because the government is passing or attempting to pass these justice reforms. Wow. And then when this happens, you see the largest call up uh, in history, 300,000 plus. They had a, a call up of 130 to 140%. Everybody went to serve. So what's the spirit like in Israel right now? It's unity. It's that we are one, we're a chad. I wouldn't say we're concerned. I think we have confidence in um, our strength with God's help. But we also, I think, are embracing kind of for the long haul. That long haul is really, I think, the big question. I mean, I don't even know, you know, with 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 the quality of the reporting that we get here, I don't even know what's happening now, much less uh, what's going to happen in the future. Uh, but I guess nobody knows. I mean, even you in the thick of it, it's probably difficult to tell how this is all going to turn out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I listen to uh, I listen to several uh, podcasts that are U.S. based. Uh, one I'm sure is very well known by our our listeners as well. Ben Shapiro, mm-hmm. Orthodox Jew, conservative uh, owner and commentator at Daily Wire, and he's you know for the past uh, six seven days, you know, this has been his point of of discussion. And I listened to the opposite side of Ben, another Jewish commentator, very popular. His name is uh, Dave Smith, um, mm. and uh, Dave Smith from a podcast called Part of the Problem. And he's uh, Jewish, uh, grew up secular. I've never heard him say this, but he's certainly alluded to it. He's he's atheist, so he doesn't. Ben Shapiro believes in the Bible, uh, whereas Dave uh, Dave Smith does not. Mm. So you have similar stuff here. You have in in Israel. You have uh, newspapers. You have uh, uh, newspapers that are more. Uh, we don't use the term conservative here. We use right, left, labor parties associated with the left, the the Likud and the the uh, different uh, factions of of the government that are uh, right, right center are all on the um, other side of the political scale. So we have newspapers that represent those opinions. And the right-wing papers are kind of uh, telling the stories, his, uh, hero stories from the um, from the occurrence that happened October 7th. They're you know building up national pride, trying to build a sense of unity, whereas the left-wing papers are really just as they have been for the past you know 10 years, everything is BB's problem. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu, um, and that uh, he should uh, be resigned or removed from office, those types of things. Kind of, Um, I guess, maybe similar to what we see in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, I I can't even imagine how this, what this is going to do to domestic politics in the long run. I mean, you saw, there was this, you know, after 9-11, you mentioned 9-11, there was this whole, like, rally around the flag and rally behind George Bush. And then, um, you know, we 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 went into Iraq because they said there was going to be weapons of mass destruction, and we didn't find any. And you saw the tide turn, and 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 after a while, you know, his his approval ratings went through the floor, and it seemed like all the goodwill, you know, was was spent over that over those eight years. And um, I got you know that my whole generation, I th- I would say like anyone my age and younger in the states is incredibly cynical now 
anytime the media or the government starts saying, oh, you know, we need we need to go to, to war again, like we need money and resources and manpower for another war. And we're just thinking, oh, like, really? Like again? And I think that this has um, this has resulted in, in probably a, a too much skepticism, you know, because I, I, I my like secret Twitter account is subscribed to the the entire, you know, the entire spectrum from, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not following any Nazis, but uh, you know, every everyone to the just to the left of that all the way over to, um, you know, someone in North Korea or whatever, just because I want to know what everyone's saying. And I'm seeing there's people out there that are saying, oh, Hamas, Hamas didn't even go after soft targets. And they didn't, you know, all of these things are just made up um, just to, to as, a, as a pretext for war. And unfortunately, you know, you know, people who have been, had been lied to before, you know, there's this once bitten, twice shy sort of attitude. And, um, you know, skepticism and cynicism. But, you know, there are facts, right? We, we do have evidence and you have personal connections and you have maybe not firsthand knowledge, but secondhand knowledge. And you did mention offline that this, um, that you had a desire to tell some, the stories of a, at least a few of the places that were immediately impacted and that, that felt you know the the pain and the the agony of this travesty in the hours following the incursion from Gaza. Yeah, yeah. So it's incredibly important that we we speak to the reality of what took place in very personal terms, and we memorialize what took place so that it's not just this broad uh, Hamas versus the the IDF. It's very personal. It's small small town America. Uh, just think of yourself as one day you wake up at 6.30 in the morning and you have people walking around your streets with machine guns going into individual homes and slaughtering, raping, and killing and burning uh, those families. Mm. Um, so we have, you know, we have 30 plus cities, the Kibbutzim and the Moshevim, along the north border of Gaza, all the way down the eastern border of Gaza. Mm -hmm. um, all the way down to the corner where uh, Gaza, Israel proper, and Egypt meet. Okay. And we have connections to some of those things on, on a very personal level. So, you know, the, the biggest one that has gained such notoriety is on Kibbutz Beri, mm. where 70... Now, first of all, one of the things which is a tragedy, absolute tragedy, is that they're now learning that a leftist... Israeli was part of an informant to the Hamas mm. that told the Hamas about this music festival that took place on Kibbutz Beri. Oh, wow. So you had 70 well-armed terrorists enter into this kibbutz um, and quickly overran it, surprised local police and security forces, and killed uh, 112 Israelis. Mm. Now, all total, now is 260 dead from that music festival. Um, wow. And this is the biggest terrorist attack that single terrorist attack that took place in the state of Israel since its inception. Wow. And the stories of what took place there, um, some of the earliest images of bodies being taken into Gaza 
under great celebration of the Gaza people were some of the young women that were brutally murdered and raped that came from this music festival and, and paraded throughout the streets of Gaza. But, you know, we have videos here and it's just absolutely terrifying. You have uh, cell, uh, cell phone images of people dancing. You know, it was a rave party. So people are dancing, celebrating. And then in the distance above their heads, you see all of these paragliders coming in. They didn't notice it. They're dancing. They might even been a, they might have been high. Who knows? They're they're kids. They're being stupid, yeah. um, having fun. And you see off in the distance these paragliders just kind of slowly coming into the distance. Mm. And next thing you know, chaos breaks out. Um, they start running. Security is attempting to defend off. They get in their car, start driving down the the, the road. And Hamas had blocked off the road. And you look at the pictures from this road, and there's, there's, you know, a hundred plus cars mm. on the road that ha- are burned, and that just one by one by one by one, they walked down the street and shot every young adult in the car, mm. murdering 260 people, young adults, that they were there, uh, and this whole rave party was a was a piece festival mm. they were they were the israelis that would have been saying give the land back to the palestinians uh let hamas you know open their borders and bring in you know uh, ships and planes from iran and yeah. they would have been the the leftist of our society most of them mm. so then you have kafar aza uh which uh is in the same region, and again, 70 terrorists entered. Each one of these terrorist groups, um, they each had their own or pockets. They each had their own assignments. Yeah. That's how part of the confusion came in. They didn't know one another had different assignments. These were all treated as like ind- uh, independent assignments. Um, mm. So Kafar Aza, 70 terrorists enter in, uh, slaughtered uh, 53 uh, uh, people. Uh, 40 this is this is where we found our 40 children mm. that were uh, burned and decapitated mm. and uh, a messianic Jewish family also lived on that kibbutz oh, no. and they were trapped in their home for more than 14 hours during the attack and by God's grace um, they and many others uh, made it out mm. but I want to kind of give a little bit of, of a hero story a small security force fought, uh, seven uh, terrorists who arrived in the kibbutz in a in a, in a Chevy uh, van, and the fight lasted for six hours. And our small little security force was able to kill all the terrorists and save the lives of every kibbutz member. Yep, yep. Now, if you look at the map, if you look at the intersection of of Israel, Egypt, and Gaza, the very, very corner, bottom corner, is a kibbutz called Kibbutz Karim Shalom. Okay. Now, we have a personal history there. Really? In the 90s, we, as a, as a community and as an organization, were offered to come live on Kibbutz Karim Shalom. Hmm. And uh, they had all the kind of facilities that we would want, like conference centers and kitchens and housing and all kinds of things. And basically, the kibbutz had been, had been uh, abandoned and 
And we could have just taken these facilities and began to kind of build a little community down there. Wow. So we moved, we moved um, some of our employees down to Kibbutz Karim Shalom. Uh, my family was planning on moving to Kibbutz Karim Shalom. Hmm. And this is in the late nineties. And uh, it didn't work out for us. And the, that whole situation ended up not working out, but some of our, our, our staff members that are still with us today lived on Kibbutz Karim Shalom for, you know, 10 years. Wow. So we have, we, we could have been there, so to speak, mm. but uh, I was really proud to read the report that, that had come from there that, you know, through the quick thinking and the security force alongside six IDF soldiers, cause there's an IDF base there. Mm. Uh, they created a security force on Karim Shalom and defeated the terrorists who entered there after a six hour battle. Wow. Um, and the entire the entire kibbutz was saved by their quick thinking. Mm. So uh, we had uh, another kibbutz. Uh, the kibbutz was well guarded, and a band of twelve security guards were able to fight off the terrorists who entered into the kibbutz. But here's the tragedy, and this kind of opens up a bigger thing. The kibbutz was saved, but the terrorists were able to get into the dairy farm. On the kibbutz, a lot of the kibbutzim down there are agricultural or farming or those types of things. Yeah, and they killed six foreign workers um, from Thailand and Nepal, and they kidnapped eight different foreign workers. Now, the videos from this particular attack are absolutely, absolutely gruesome. You have you have uh, Thailand Thai, uh, Thailand workers on the ground, still alive, but on the ground. And they begin to behead them with uh, shovels, with farm tools. So, mm. it, like essentially blunt objects. Yeah. So they were they were utterly butchered. So it's not just about Jewish lives; it's about life. It's about yeah. life and and mission. And it's very important for particular American listeners to be concerned with that thirty plus Americans died. And there's 22 Americans that are supposedly kidnapped and currently in Gaza. That's mm. 50 Americans that were killed or taken captive and ultimately will be killed by this October 7th incursion. Yeah, They did a, a few days after the event, they did a, a map and there were 50 different nations of people that were either murdered or kidnapped um, by the Hamas on October 7th. Possibly that's why you see such a beautiful support from like Germany, Poland, uh, England, America, because it wasn't just Jews. Yeah. It was their people as well. Yeah. It's, what, what a strategic error. I mean, in some sense, mm -hmm. as, uh, as, as far as losing the media war, I mean, what were they trying to accomplish? Uh, just, yeah. just to cause as much destruction as possible? Because I mean, that's about all that they got. They didn't. I don't see any like any any strategic goals that they accomplished. It's kind of a you know you do all the yeah. time to plan something that doesn't get you anything or get you anywhere. Yeah, I think I think part of our job to be defenders of the defenders is to to know history, to have some sense of accuracy, to be able to summarize things very quickly, and to give like counterpoints to issues that are being presented by our the, those that are adversaries against us. Oh, for sure. Again, going back to my neighbor coming in and saying 50 years ago today, 
was the Yom Kippur War. Ever since he said that, it was like something in my mind, I was sitting back saying, I want to understand the connections between the Yom Kippur War and what I call the Simchat Torah War, hmm. because it happened on Simchat Torah. What are the connections? What, what are the uniquenesses? So in 1973, we have the Yom Kippur War. Israel's attacked from all sides. By God's hand, he miraculously provides for us, and we win the war. And in winning that war, we took the massive, massive landmass of the Sinai Peninsula. Mm. And I want everybody to go to a globe. I want everybody to open up Google Maps, and I want you to see how big the Sinai Peninsula is. Yeah. And how important it is, both from a land perspective, but also a strategic perspective. It borders the Red Sea. It has the Mediterranean Sea. It's a massive landmass, all of this type of thing. So we uh, won the war and we took the Sinai Peninsula. Israel took the Sinai Peninsula. Hmm. I mean, this 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 increased Israel's landmass by by magnitudes. Yeah. But in 1978, at the Camp David Accords between Menachem Begin, Jimmy Carter, and um, uh, Anwar Sadat, there was a peace agreement signed in 1978 that basically Israel agreed to give back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, mm. that we won in the war. Now, between 1973 and 1979, there were dozens and dozens of Israeli communities that were being built and established by the permission of and the encouragement of our government to go and establish Jewish presence in the Sinai Peninsula. Hmm. The largest of those communities was a city, uh, a community called Yamit. Hmm. It sat right at the, at the southern bottom point of Gaza, where Gaza is today, on the Mediterranean Sea. And in 1968, that community had grown to 600 houses and 2,500 residents. So 2,500 people lived there, 600 houses. It was a small, growing community. Mm -hmm. But as part of our peace agreement, uh, we uh, told the Egyptians that we would remove all the Jews from the Sinai. Mm. So under duress, that community, and under resistance actually, they resisted our government, and the government had to, to physically remove those residents from their houses and relocate them in back into Israel proper. Hmm. So these people that left Yamit, they formed a new community called Nativ HaSara um, on, the, on the northern border of Gaza. So if you look at a map, it's like it's literally right on the north boundary marker of Gaza and Israel. Wow. It's the it's the it's the absolute closest of all the different cities that surround the Gaza Strip area. Yeah. Now this community over since that time, it's kind of positioned itself as a community that desires to have peace and peaceful relationship with the Palestinians that are in Gaza. Hmm. In fact, they have the wall that kind of separates and protects Israel from Gaza. They turn that into a peace wall. And everybody, when they come, are given like a little mosaic that they can come and kind of contribute to the growing artwork on the wall, making the wall something beautiful that um, speaks of peace and desire for peace and all those types of things. Mm. Now, 
um, one of our staff members here, his, her, she grew up on Natif Hasara, and her family was there on the day of the attack. So I spoke with our staff uh, individual and, and asked him how, um, what was it like for them? Anyway, 21 people died. And he told me that uh, some gentleman on the, on the Moshav had gotten up early in the morning and saw the parachutes coming in and warned everybody. They called the army. They called the police. The police and army did not come for three hours. Wow. But 21 people ended up dying. Now, I think this is a very important story on a couple levels. First of all, I think it's very significant that people understand and remember that Israel gave back land. Yeah. We gave back the Sinai Peninsula. It's not about land. It's not about territory for us or conquering or building or establishing. We gave back land, and not only did we give back land— but we removed Jewish presence by force from that land. Yeah. Our government destroyed those homes that those Jews lived in so that they would not return. So when you think of like a scale and weights and balances and you try to understand things, it's not just Israel's attempting to conquer land. We've given back land that we've justifiably won through war to create buffers between us and our enemies for the sake of peace, for the hopes of peace. Mm -hmm. So as we think about this, and this is <clears throat> something that I, I don't think this would matter at all to anybody, but it matters to me because I think it's, I think it's significant. In 1948, when Israel was established and the UN partitioned off the land of Israel, and it divided the land between Israelis and Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Israel immediately accepted that and said, we accept that. We'll take that. Yeah. We, we'll sign the paper. We agree to that. The Palestinians never agreed to it. Mm. They, they, didn't, they never accepted it. Yeah. They rejected it. So when people talk about the pre-67 borders or when people talk about the land that was partitioned by the UN, the Arabs never accepted it. Yeah. They never took it, so to speak. They never said, oh, thank you, know, we'll establish our home here. They just didn't accept it. So to me, what, what's significant about that is that everybody wants to say Israel has taken land. They haven't taken any – no one ever accepted that land. Yeah. Instead, in 1948, they immediately went into war. They immediately went into war to annihilate the Jews, to get them out of what they perceived was their land, but they never accepted the partition. So there's no yeah. authority in that, in my opinion, that UN partition, only because they never accepted those param those those parameters. Yeah. Well, I want to get into that in a, in, a, in just a minute about that war of independence and sort of the national mindset that was born out of that. But before we do that, you mentioned the biggest reserve call-up, I think, maybe in history. Is that right? With um, hundreds of thousands of people being called up. And you know, not, not only do you have personal experience on some of these kibbutzim and, and, and personal contacts there, I'm sure you know people who are on the front lines right now. Yeah. Yeah, the call-up was incredible. So again, that was Shabbat morning when the war started, October 7th. And all of the reservists in our neighborhood, 
are leaving for their base Shabbat afternoon, driving on Shabbat, you know, leaving to go to war. Mm. The shock of our families of saying goodbye to our sons, leaving to go to the north, to the south, was incredible. Mm. To just watch families cry and embrace their sons, leaving. Our family having to say goodbye to my son to, mm. to go up to the north to serve, that was incredible. But we do have um, friends that are serving in the front lines. And I just like I want to mention some of the kibbutz, I want to mention their names. I want them to be real. I want people to to know a little bit our, our their story, our story, so that people have real faces and, and, and uh, a heartfelt connection to people that are serving in this capacity. Yeah, absolutely. So – I'll, I'll mention their name. I'll tell a little bit about the story. Now, when I mention their names, you know, I would really honestly appreciate if people would write them down and pray for for these people. There's there's 350,000 Jews they could be praying for. Mm. But these are ones that we are that have encountered our lives, that have blessed us, that we are in relationship with. And it's Haim. The first one is Haim ben Chana. Haim was the most important, influential person in our family coming to Israel. Wow. He's supported us. He's helped us. He's an amazing, amazing, godly man, um, and he is—he's—he's uh, he's my age, but he continues to uh, serve, even though the army says you don't have to serve anymore; you're too old. He says I'm still serving, so he continues to serve. And uh, last Friday night, we had his uh, wife over for Shabbat meal, and right before we did Kiddush, we said, "How is Chaim?" And she broke down weeping telling us that he had talked to her earlier in the day saying that he's going into Gaza and the fear and the emotion that she had was so palatable. Everybody at our Shabbat table started weeping. Mm. Him and his wife have been at our, our table many times. And when we say the Berkat Hamazon after the, after the meal, there's a section in the Berkat Hamazon where the guest that is at your table says a blessing to the host, the owner of the house. And every time Chaim sits at my Shabbat table, he's the most pronounced and he's the one that gives that blessing to me. He blesses me. He blesses our home. And when we did Berkat HaMazon on, on Friday night and we sat there and no one said the blessing for the host, it was such a pronounced statement that Haim is not here. Mm. And it was, again, in, instantly everyone is praying. Uh, Yonatan uh, Ben Teina, he's a, a kid that we've known since he's been you know, five years old, watched him grow up. And he just entered the army service uh, six months ago. Mm. He hasn't completed his training, but they uh, told him that uh, he's been trained enough that he's going on the front lines. Wow. Uh, uh, Leah Bat Simcha, uh, many of you know her, uh, Judy uh, who works for uh, First Street Design and the Brahm Center. She's serving in Gaza um, on our home front command. Um, she told us the other day that it's hard for her to be in her um, uh, in her office in Ga- uh, where she's at, stationed at, because there's still blood on the wall from the war that took place. Wow. Um, and I'll just mention a few others. Uh, Benjamin Aaron uh, Ben Root, he's a young American kid that had no sense of direction or purpose in life. And he came to Israel as a lone soldier and served here and got his sense of direction and got his feet under him. And is one of the most amazing young men that I know. He was married two years ago. He has, He's the father of a one-year-old. 
and he's a commander on a tank battalion. And he texted us a few nights ago and said, please pray for me and my family. Um, I'm going in. It's terrifying to think of, of, of him and his family situation going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our staff people here in Israel, uh, Asher Ben uh, uh, Gela, he uh, is also serving on the front lines on the northern border, which is equally as terrifying. But he got called to duty, and his wife is eight months eight months pregnant. She's due uh, with their first child in three weeks. Wow. And through our extended family, we have men that are serving as um, battalion leaders on F-16 flights that are taking sorties over Gaza. We have uh, friends of friends that are serving. We have uh, long-term friends that have been, our kids went to kindergarten together, that those men are now fathers and have kids and families, and they're also serving on the front lines. One of them was abroad doing humanitarian work abroad. And when the war broke out, he was on the first plane back here to be able to serve his country. Wow. So our wars have names, Yom Kippur War, Simchat Torah War, and people have names and mm. people have lives. And and these are some of the lives that, that, we, that we are most concerned with. Wow. Well, like you said, we don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about the specifics, although I think it's important to be aware and to sort of set the context for a discussion more about the ideas and a discussion about like the theology and, you know, the, the Jewish Jesus and the land, the people, the scriptures of Israel. I will, however, say to our listeners that if you're frustrated, not getting good information about what's happening on the ground and not being able to be sure about what you read and hear and whether it's true or not, and not really being sure what you can do, stay tuned to Messiah online. Go to First Future Zion's website, ffoz.org, sign into your content hub, or just click learning and go to Messiah Online, and we're going to be doing the best we can to provide reliable information and maybe more importantly, solid direction as to our role as followers of the Jewish Messiah. There's already a couple of great articles out there. Boaz has an article called Our Wars Have Names, and D. Thomas Lancaster has a great article called the time of war. So get connected, stay connected, and stay informed. So the modern state of Israel, and I I, I never stop finding this fascinating. The modern state of Israel was born out of a war of independence from the United Kingdom, but the war wasn't with the United Kingdom. Um, as soon as it's, it seems like as soon as the war, like as soon as the independence was declared, the British were like, whatever, we hate you guys. Anyway, you have it, you know, they were tired. You know, they were tired of trying to manage the, 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 what they call the British mandate of Palestine, which they had had since world war one. But, um, the war was with everyone else around all the other countries in the, in the area invaded and it really sort of miraculously Israel prevailed. And you sent me this quote from David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, uh, from from that context of, of winning that war of independence. And the quote is, it is good that they know from the outside that in the security of Israel stands a man who cannot be defeated. And I thought I'd just ask uh, if you would tell me, what, what does this quote um, mean to you today as an Israeli living 
in a time of renewed conflict? Well, first of all, it's very personal. That quote comes from a poster that I bought my son the day that he enlisted into the Israeli military. And it was hanging on his wall. And when he got married, his wife took it down. I mean, who wants a picture of Ben-Gurion <laughs> on their wall? She replaced it with like flower painting or something. Yeah, some Hobby Lobby stuff. And I'd actually forgotten that we had purchased it for him. But when he left to go serve, she uh, took the picture that she'd replaced it with down and put that back up there and sent the picture to our family saying that the picture is back in its rightful place. Wow. I wanted my son to know that when he goes to serve, that the integrity in which he serves is something that cannot be defeated. The the motivations for his service cannot be squelched or or cannot be undermined. And I think that this quote itself really does speak well to the character of the national identity of is, is Israel, but also particularly the national identity of the Israeli soldier. You know, each soldier here, because of our system of mandatory service and the family and the camaraderie that's created through continual service through the reserve structure and, you know, staying connected, there's a, a deep sense of national identity that is created through your service in the army. So part of what makes this, this character of a man, the strength of a man that gives the pretense that he cannot be defeated is this national identity. Uh, you know, there's also a historical context. When Jews read their history in the Tanakh and they see uh, our struggle against all kinds of odds uh, in history and the attempt of, of destruction of our people throughout the millennia, um, it it instills a determination to protect their national um, existence and to continue to secure its future. We're a young enough country. We're seventy five years old. Everybody, you know, has grandpas and dads that have served in different wars and and have created a a legacy of service. Um, so there's that historical context that really is an underpinning of the character of the of the Israeli soldier that cannot be defeated. And I, I I want to repeat that. We cannot be defeated because we have enemies that attempt to defeat us. But I think we stand uh, both on history and a strong sense of identity that is something that is that's undefeatable. You know, I think another thing that is part of the character of the Israeli soldier that is strong, that cannot be defeated is the moral and ethical framework that our uh, IDF has in place. First of all, you know, for those of you that don't understand the term IDF, IDF stands for Israel Defense Forces. It was intentionally called IDF, the Defense Forces, because Israel does not have an aggressor army. Our army was never created or established to go and go and to expand, defeat all those types of things. We are simply a defense army that is intended to defend our homeland. And that's a big difference when you look at the different postures of armies going in, even in the world today, going in Russia, Ukraine, going in and advancing yourself into another country and trying to take that land and that, you know, that government and, you know, uh, bring that into 
uh, your uh, ethos. Yeah. Um, so IDF is is part of our framework. It's a defense of our life, of the civilians, of our communities, of our way of life. And then I think just at the end of the day, what makes our army strong and unique to speak to the quote of Bagurian is the community and the camaraderie that we have. You know, lone soldiers coming from America, staying with families, hosting soldiers for Shabbat meals, going through life together, all those types of things are just they build character and they establish patterns that are that are hard to be broken. But Jacob Ben Gurion, he didn't practice Judaism. He didn't have a mezuzah on his door. He wasn't married under a chuppah. He probably didn't eat kosher. Yeah. All these types of like Jewish identity markers. But one of the things he's famous for saying is that he's more, because he's a Jew that lives in Israel, he keeps more of the mitzvot than religious Jews outside of Israel. Yeah, there's something to that. <laughs> so now I don't, yeah, I, I don't want to expand on that per se. I think what he might be hinting at is that there's something inside of every Jew that understands Hashem's calling and intention and purpose, and that builds a character and an a identity and an ethic that is something that cannot be defeated. So the prophet Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 41.10, where he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And Deuteronomy, you know, the the our covenant, the Torah, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, Moshe says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. And then, you know, the Psalms, which we've all been praying uh, through this uh, recent tragedy. Psalm 121.4, uh, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber or sleep. So collectively, these texts interwoven or combined with Ben-Gurion's conviction, they um, they compose a symphony of um, of endurance. Not to get too poetic here, but I think they, they paint a, a vivid tapestry of the modern state built on ancient promises and a vision that spans all uh, millennia. And as Israel, with God's help, continues its journey facing these age-old challenges uh, that we that we have, and we face new adversaries, and they come up with new tactics, uh, it's my hope and prayer that these words will fortify the spirit of our people and strengthen them to face the challenges that we face um, as we move forward. Well, and the Isaiah passage hits especially hard because by that point in Isaiah, he's talking to exiles. You know, in, in Deuteronomy, there's this imminent promise of entering the land and that and, and victory in that context. But Isaiah is talking to a nation that, in some sense, is is looking down the barrel of seventy years of exile, and mm -hmm. um, even in that context, Hashem says. I'm with you. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. And I think that's a, that's a powerful message yeah. for for this generation as well. Mm -hmm. And on that note, I mean, I think it's worth talking about uh, the spiritual dimensions of what's going on here. I mean, the, the, the Jewish people are, are no strangers to exile. I guess if, if you add up the years, you know, there's been more years of exile than there were years in the land. 
Um, and the, the, the current exile, the Roman exile, started in the first and second centuries. So, so biblical prophecy says, sort of at the end of time, the Messiah is going to come, and we think, you know, he'll come back, but the Messiah will come, and he'll regather the exiles and establish his kingdom. And of course, we believe that Yeshua is going to do that. He'll accomplish all those things. Uh, but, you know, e equally clear is the fact that this has not happened yet. We're not living in the Messianic era. So the state of Israel is not, per se, the Messianic kingdom. However, it's it's not the same as anything that came before it either. Like, it's not the fulfillment or the culmination of Bible prophecy, but but I think th there's everybody I know, and, and, you know, the stream of Christianity I grew up in would say, there's there's got to be a significance to 7 million Jewish people living in Israel. There's more, I think there's more people in Israel now than more Jewish people in Israel than in any, any other country in the world. So it's not the the prophesied end of exile but it's it, but it's something maybe the first steps or a a prelude to the final redemption but what like what sort of biblical basis or 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 basis in traditional Judaism even do we have for for that hope that this that what we're seeing now isn't like a fluke or just a historical blurb like like that's going to lead back into more years of of darkness and exile what hope do we have that this could be the the final stretch the home stretch before the final redemption so first words of zion um has always had a strong perspective in terms of of the prophets of israel that their words are true that we are a part of those words and that in some capacity we're helping those words come alive. So our foundational verse of the organization is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, which speaks of the word going forth from Zion, all nations saying to Hashem, uh, teach us your ways that we may walk in your paths. For the Torah goes forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's our foundational verse. We've always read ourselves into that, that in some way we hope to be contributing to that reality. Yeah. So we've always had kind of a, a, a Jewish eschatology, so to speak, that allows us to understand that there is a literal kingdom, that kingdom will be established, Messiah will rule and reign from Jerusalem, peace will uh, invade the world, that Hashem's name will be sanctified throughout the world, meaning that all false gods will be eclipsed by the light that comes forth from Zion, that the, that Hashem will be revealed and his name will be one, as it says in Zechariah. Yeah, yeah. So we at First Roots of Zion view the rebirth of the modern state of Israel in prophetic terms. We do see it as a first blossoming or a first uh, contributor or another step in the redemption process. Mm. So a few months ago, I was uh, I took a friend, two friends down to Hebron, and we were going to go visit the 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 cave of the patriarchs, the 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 Machpelah cave. Mm. And uh, while at the same time we were going to go to a mikvah that is in a very dangerous part of Hebron. Hebron is a very dangerous city for Jews. Really. But there's a mikvah that is said to be the mikvah that Abraham used after he buried Sarah. Now, this mikvah is incredibly unique. As I said, it's in a dangerous part of the area. So we hike down to this mikvah. It's under the ground. You have to walk down like 
uh, two flights of stairs and you walk into this dark cave um, and uh, you find this pool of water that is from a natural spring. It's a really amazing experience. But while we were there, we stopped on the way back out of Hebron at a little uh, coffee shop shop. And on the back wall of this coffee shop, there was this book that was like in a Ziploc bag that had like dust on it. And the book uh, is uh, the book is entitled The Dawn of Redemption. It's by a, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Filber. Hmm. And I looked at, I just saw it. And I'm like, I, I felt compelled to buy that book, that I that I need that book. So I, I buy the book and I've been like, kind of just slowly absorbing it over the past few months. Now, on the back of the book, it says, uh, this book provides a clear Torah-based outlook on the events of the past 150 years and proves that the ultimate redemption is well underway. Well, that's encouraging. Right. That's right up my alley. And then basically what the book does is it just goes through step by step by step historical accounts of the rebirth of the modern state of Israel and shows how these are all progression points to the ultimate redemption. So that's right up our alley. That's that's what we believe. We believe we're a part of that. We want to be we want to be a prophetic organization that is pushing those future prophecies into reality. Yeah. So as I was reading this book, and this this book is going to become kind of our talking points for the next few minutes as we progress through the final stages of this podcast. But mm. uh, one of the things it talks about throughout the beginning part of the book is how redemption, the ultimate redemption kind of is at times revealed and concealed, revealed and concealed. We see glimpses of it. We even see glimpses of this through the life and the teachings of the Messiah and the gospels. We see aspects of the kingdom revealed and then they're concealed. The, yeah. the, the Messiah opens up a window and reveals the kingdom and then it's concealed. So there's a quote uh, from, the uh, Shir Hasharim uh, Rabbah uh, that says, my beloved is like a deer, just as a deer is visible and then becomes concealed, it's visible and then becomes concealed. So too, the final redeemer will reveal himself to them and then become concealed from them. That sounds so, familiar. Yeah. So we have this like idea of uh, likening, Redemption to this de- this deer that kind of like is seen and unseen, seen and unseen. The redemption process, another one. The redemption process is likened to day and night. Night is the exile, and just as the night is darkest before dawn, so too the exile is darkest before the final and full redemption. Mm. So when we are in these dark times, and it's on every front, uh, you know, part of the conspiracy here is that Putin somehow prompted this whole incursion of the Hamas into Israel. Yeah, I saw some tweets about that. Yeah, to distract people from uh, the Ukrainian-Russian war, and that certainly worked, so that's Mm -hmm. possibly viable. Also, China possibly did it in order to be able to, you know, invade Taiwan. We live in a very unstable and crazy world where darkness, in my opinion, is darker than ever. And mm. that whether that's a social issue, a political issue, uh, wars, rumors of wars, all these types of things, we're in a very difficult and difficult time. Here's another one. The redemption process is also likened unto pregnancy. At first, there's distress. There's uncomfortableness, uh, morning sickness. 
in the middle of the pregnancy, it's not so bad. But in the end, there is more distress and the full pain of pregnancy. Mm. So if you can liken the redemption to pregnancy and the end of pregnancy, then the most duress is going to come at this time. Yeah. And then the Hofesheim pointed to the rampant, uh, if you can imagine this. <laughs> I mean, I wonder what he would say today. Yeah. So Hofesheim pointed to the rampant culture of sin in his time as the sign of the Messiah was on the brink of arrival. His opinion is based from a passage from the Talmud, Sanhedrin 98a, that before the Messiah comes, brazenness will increase, the cost of living will soar, the wisdom of scholars will become foul, and those who fear sin will be despised. Furthermore, the truth will be absent. Check. Check, 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 check. Man, talk about that that cost of living, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that he actually said that, so... So on a social level, on a cultural level, our world is upside down. Yeah. Darkness is, it's increasing. And even if you, going back to this, the situation with the uh, Israel and the, the, the Hamas, uh, Daniel Lancaster in his article, A Time of War, one of the things he says, which I think is such a critical part, uh, point of his article, is that a line has been drawn. If you find yourself somehow defending the actions of the Hamas and justifying what they did, that's you're on the side of the line that is total darkness, total depravity. Hmm. So uh, there's these Hebrew newspapers here, and um, one of the stories that we translated from the Hebrew newspaper is a short little uh, article by a woman by the name of Hannah Katan. She writes about the hardship of being a mother of seven boys who are all uh, fighting on the front lines. She writes that during these days, she's uh, taking strength from the book of Psalms and the unity of the Jewish people at this time. She was asked if we're taking a step back. So is is now a time of concealment of that redemption? So she was asked, are we taking a step back from the redemptive process? Mm. And she answers that this horrific event is actually bringing us closer to redemption. And she quotes the very first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, who was the chief rabbi during the British mandate period. His name was Rav Avraham Yitzhak Cook. She quotes Rav Cook in his book, Orot, that many Jews who died during World War I, as those who brought the atonement to the Jewish people and prepared them for the next stage of redemption. Likewise, she notes Those who died in the recent attack did not die in vain, but their deaths were paving a way for the future redemption. I want to underscore to our audience that she can can confidently say that because she, like you, like me, like our listeners, believes emphatically in the promise of the resurrection of the dead. That, That she knows that Hashem will be faithful, that he will resurrect the righteous, and she has hope in Hashem's faithfulness. Yeah, I have to explain this to people, or at least in my head, I explain it to them. And no, no, not like anyone's asking me this, these questions, because um, you know, since COVID, I just don't go outside anymore. But uh, uh, there's uh, Jacob. That's over. Go get some sun. 
I do. I do. Um, there's just nothing to do around here, honestly. But uh, the 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 resurrection is uh, the the future resurrection of the dead is sort of key to all all of this. You know, the, the, these questions, this, this theodicy that we try to do, this defense of God's actions. How could God allow this to happen? How could God allow that uh, that to happen? And it's like, okay, if you don't think that there's any life after this one, then it's true that there's there's like there's no excuse in a sense for any of this to have been allowed to happen for the holocaust and these other atrocities it, it it's only justifiable like it's only possible to justify god's actions rationally if this is just the preparation for the world to come and you, when you die here it's not over like you get you get what's coming to you in the next life whether that's whether that's something that uh you know something good or something bad and if you don't, if you don't believe that, then yeah, the, the, it will look like God is unjust, but it's very strange to me that people will pin that on God, but then not, not believe in the resurrection as if they're, they're in an alternate universe where there is a God, but there is no resurrection and they're mad at that God. And it's like, look, you take it all or don't take any of it. The, it does make sense if you, if you unwrap the whole package, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, Imagine, imagine exile and redemption like this. All of the Jews were collectively put into a, a sailboat, and the Ruach of Hashem filled that sail with wind that blew them the direction of the nations, and they were dispersed. Hmm. And now there's a reversal that's taking place. The Jews are returning, the land is flourishing, and the, the boat is now pointed in the direction and going in the direction of Israel, the redemption, the promise of the return of the land. The Rav, Rav Cook goes on to speak about like what is the greatest sign of that we are living in the times of of the redemption, the beginning of the times of of the great redemption. Yeah, and he quotes Ezekiel chapter thirty six verse eight. Ezekiel says, "There is no clearer sign of the end of days than in this verse. But you, O mountains of Israel, will give." forth your branches and yield your fruit for my people Israel they are soon to come home and rav cook says that the trees have begun to blossom and bring forth fruit in the land now when you look back just on a practical level over the history of the land of Israel whether it's the ottomans or the crusaders or the even the british yeah. You know, the British, as you said, they washed their hands and said, hey, we're done here. Yeah. Israel, the land itself never produced. It never thrived until Jews returned to this land and it began to become green. Mm. It began to produce fruit. And this is the sign of this prophecy coming true, that the mountains are beginning to bear forth fruit. The branches are beginning to blossom because the people are about to come home. And that is a sign of that redemption finding its 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 culmination. So to recap, the struggles that we have, the difficulties that we have, the pains that we have, the darkness that we experience, all of that, this current event that we're experiencing, all of this are steps of our ultimate redemption. And they are going to be painful. They are going to be hard. It is going to be difficult. It is going to be dark, and we just have to be 
mindful of that as we encounter them, that we don't become discouraged, but we remain focused on our work of redemption as a collective people and as a nation. Well, and I think that that's, that's important to keep in mind because I'm sure that none of our listeners are like this, but there are some people out there who every time um, uh, there's anything that happens in the Middle East, they're, they're glued to the television thinking, if only it could get bad enough, then Yeshua will come back. And, you know, what, what, what we would all say that we want peace, but there are people who, who think, well, it's not, we're not going to have peace until this, this horrible rain of blood um, and I think it's it's important to distinguish that's not what Yeshua is waiting for. Yeshua is not waiting for enough people to die or enough carnage. That's one way that this could all play, play out. But what he's waiting for is the, is the national repentance of the Jewish people, the return to Torah mm-hmm. and to heed his message of redemption and re- repentance, a repentance that leads to redemption. And this is where I think First Fruits of Zion comes in. I mean, you know, you mentioned you mentioned that book by Rabbi Filber, and he talks about the three pronged like attack on the nation of Israel that that mirrors coincidentally, or maybe not, the three pronged aspect of our mission. We are, we have always tried to reconcile Christians with the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel, and these are all these have always been under attack throughout um, throughout the exile and throughout history. And obviously, right now, during this war, the land and the people of Israel are under, are under attack. And there's very little, that, I mean, that's not really our um, domain. That's not that's not anything we can do about that. And especially, certainly, our listeners aren't able to contribute in, any, in any, much of a meaningful way to, that, con- to like, that conflict. But a more insidious attack, and one that I think, you know, crept in, without maybe a lot of people, uh, at least a lot of Christians noticing, is this assault on the scriptures of Israel. And that's sort of what our wheelhouse is. And, you know, when you look back at Christian history, we started making mistakes really early on, like first, second century, to where we made it impossible for ourselves to understand the scriptures of Israel because we stopped reading them from a Jewish perspective. And this, this mistake has had ripple effects and like follow on effects after effects that I think are just too magnitudinous to, to even understand or believe. I mean, absolutely world shattering, world changing effects. And to try to repair this is it's a big job, but I think it's like, it's an important part of restoring peace to Zion, restoring the Jewish people and bringing the final redemption, right? Yeah. You know, we, um, I think we developed this tagline to attempt to articulate our message uh, in the late 90s or mid 90s. And it was that First Church of Zion is teaching about the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel. In fact, our highest sod program that was first developed in 1998. It was the highest ode, the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel. That trifecta is essential to for Christians to understand their relationship to the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel. And not only Christians to understand their relationship to the land, the people, and scriptures, 
but to realize that God's relationship with the Jewish people is defined in those three terms. So when I was reading through this book and I came across this sentence, uh, Rabbi Philber says, from our inception as a nation, the people of Israel have been have bound themselves to their God with a three-way bond, the nation of Israel, the Torah of Israel, and the land of Israel. It just obviously hit me because that's something that we've been saying for 25 years. Mm-hmm. But I've never thought about it like this. Listen to the next sentence. He says, there's not a single significant event in the wondrous history of our people that is not connected to one of these three components. Mm. And he goes on to say that when you look at um, these three components and the world's attempt to destroy the Jewish people, which is the attempt to destroy the Jewish God, the God of Israel, that these are either collectively assaulted or individually assaulted throughout time. So at times, it's just a focus on the land. And if the land can be destroyed or removed from Israel's relationship, then all of a sudden that three-chord bond is broken. Hmm. If Israel can defile the Torah or the people, the nation of Israel can cease to exist, then the God of Israel is no longer the God of the Jews, the one true God. Yeah. When I saw that statement of that throughout time, not either collectively or singularly, one of these three aspects is attempting to be destroyed. It was powerful because all of a sudden it, it kind of made sense that it's not just a matter of Jews existing. There has to be a land. Mm-hmm. And those Jews have to be faithful to the Torah. Yeah. And if any one of those components is is not in place, then God is not faithful and his word is not true. So – Along those lines, and, and I haven't read the book, but you did send me offline this this quote from the book, The Dawn of Redemption, again by Rabbi Yaakov Filber. And I think, you know, he put it better than I could, and maybe I'll just read this quote. It says, um, in every generation, they, our enemies, stand up against us to destroy us. And this is, this is well known from the Pesach Haggadah. This is not merely a figure of speech, but an historical fact. And if we contemplate our enemy's motivations, we will notice that their attack is always aimed at one of these three components. And he's talking about the land, the people, the scriptures of Israel. We will. Um, so the first person who gave the title nation was Pharaoh, and he immediately decreed physical destruction upon Israel. So this is an attack on the nation, the people of Israel. Behold, the nation of Israel, this is from uh, Exodus 1, Behold, the nation of the children of Israel are more numerous and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with it. Every son that is born, you shall cast him into the river. The wicked Haman followed this path as well, seeking to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews from young to old, children and women, in one day. And this is Esther 3.13. This phenomenon repeated itself in countless pogroms and the European Holocaust. In their attempt to destroy the Jewish people, the enemies of Israel did not satisfy themselves with the physical destruction alone. Instinctively, they recognized that Israel's survival is contingent on its adherence and loyalty to its faith and its Torah. Therefore, they tried to sever Israel from its faith. The Greeks, who decreed that Jews must refrain from keeping the Sabbath, learning Torah, and circumcising their sons, he's talking now about the the Maccabean era, 
while also forcing them to write on an ox's horn that they have no portion in the God of Israel. This is a quote from um, Midrash Rabbah in Bereshit. Followed this path. The Hasmoneans knew that these decrees were dangerous, not only to the Jewish religion, but also to the national survival of Israel. Therefore, they declared a rebellion and were prepared to put their own personal existence in danger in order to ensure the continued national existence of Israel. And of course, we celebrate that today at Hanukkah. Rabbi Filber keeps going. He says, Christianity, and this is where, it, so he sort of twists the knife for us here as followers of Yeshua, and the indictment here. He says, Christianity followed in the footsteps of the Greeks, seeing to hurt Judaism more than Jews. It tried to destroy the people of Israel in a national sense by causing them to forsake their religion. To achieve this goal, Christianity granted benefits and favorable conditions to those proselytes who betrayed their people and moved over to the Christian camp. Notwithstanding, Christianity did not loathe applying pressure and hell-like torture to those Jews who, despite it all, remained loyal to their faith and their nation. Through our lengthy exile, we became accustomed to being attacked by the nations, both physically to destroy the Jewish nation and spiritually to sever the nation from its faith and its Torah. Lately, when Hashem returned the captivity of Zion for the third time, the Gentile nation's attempts are focused on undermining the third component to sever Israel from its land. And these are the wars that we've seen since 1948. The Arab-Israeli conflict, Rabbi Filbert concludes, in which we have been embroiled for the last several decades is, practically speaking, centered around one issue, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. I hope I pronounced that right. But I think, you know, for our for our listeners, you know, it's important to understand, and I, I think hopefully most of our listeners understand by now that converting Jewish people away from Judaism to Christianity, how damaging that is to the Jewish people, not just on a national level, like Rabbi Filber says, but on a spiritual level, a level. You know, adhering for a Jewish person, cleaving to Messiah cannot, on a spiritual level, it, it cannot involve like a divorce from the Torah, from Judaism, and from the Jewish people. And, you know, the, the damage, the spiritual damage that has been done over the centuries by you know, sometimes by firebrand-wielding inquisitors, but other times by really well-meaning, sweet people that just wanted to be missionaries and and bring the Jewish people to redemption. You know, this what we see is we 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 need a radical change in the way that we try to connect the Jewish people with the Messiah. Uh, thank you for reading that instead of just summarizing it. I think it's such a important concept to try to help people wrap their mind around how those three elements, the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel, have attempted to be destroyed through different eras, different times, different means, but all of them have the same goal, which is to eliminate the Jewish people from uh, from existence. Now, hmm. you mentioned a very important part about Christi Christians trying to dissuade people away from or try to sway people away from Judaism and the practice of Torah. I think we all have to be very careful with how we speak about this Arab-Israeli conflict 
in regards to the land. Mm. If we come away saying, just give the land back, give the land back, give the land back, become make peace, give the land back, could we be contributing to a destruction component to that third component, the land of Israel mm. as well? So I think these are these are very sensitive things, which I don't understand fully. I don't know how to answer the question of the land and having a land that's occupied both by Jews and Arabs. I don't know the solution to that. Yeah. Um, I think that's why we have such a strong hope for the return of Messiah to um, establish his kingdom and to sort all these things out. Yeah, that Isaiah 2 verse says he'll settle the disputes. You know, there's no one's going to be making war. He'll just settle the disputes. And presumably, he'll he'll find a place for everybody to live. I mean, isn't that in the Torah somewhere that God... God decides where all the borders of the nations will be and where people can live and I th and I think in the kingdom we'll see that we'll see that reality and and there's not going to be any need to to fight over it and you know may that may that day come soon. And I think um you know another thing that you hit on there that's important for 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 people getting lots and lots of news uh from lots of different perspectives is you know the the people who are saying, "Well, just just turn the switch back and give all the land back, and let's go." You, you know what what are all these what are all these people doing here anyway? They, they, didn't they didn't they come from Europe or Brooklyn or where or wherever? You know, sort of sort of conveniently forgetting the circumstances immediately preceding the foundation of the state of Israel. What they don't what what the people who are saying this don't they don't they don't believe that the Jewish people were given the land of Israel by God, by any kind of divine decree. And they don't believe in any kind of spiritual significance to the land or significance to Jewish people living in the land. So that that makes their argument seem, it makes a lot of sense and it's internally consistent because they don't believe that, that Jewish people have any right to be there. And you know, an internally consistent argument can be very persuasive and very powerful, but we have to keep in mind that there's a that there's a, an element of missing from their worldview that's causing them to come to these conclusions. And if we believe that God did give the land of Israel to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, that we will come to a different conclusion on that basis. So, exactly. So yeah. another thing that, and I was talking to to um. D. Thomas Lancaster about this briefly, just um, very soon after all of this started, because we were trying to think, well, what are we going to say? What's the first thing we want to say about this? And this out of this was born Dan's article and your article on Messiah Online. And what the first thing I said, well, was um, it's really sort of a sobering reminder that the exile's not over yet, and even in is even in Israel. It's not possible to live as a Jewish person without bearing the burden of that identity and feeling to some degree the the pain and the suffering of exile. And I think, you know, for all for all of us out there who have been Zionists our whole lives, our whole lives, and and you know, for those my age, you know, who haven't known a world without a state of Israel, it's important to recognize that Zionism has not solved anti-Semitism not for Jewish people in the diaspora and not for Jewish people in the land of Israel. And this travail, like this uh, this exile identity or this this exilic state of being will not be solved and won't be over until Messiah comes. 
and this coming, like like I said a few minutes ago, is predicated on the the national repentance of the Jewish people, and that's that's what we're like hoping and praying for, heeding his message of heeding Yeshua's message of repentance, and returning to the Torah. And I sort of wondered, you know, maybe it's too early to tell, um, but do you see any sort of movement in that direction? Are you seeing? Um, the the first fruits of redemption or or repentance in the land of Israel amongst the Jewish people. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, that's a hard question to answer. I can tell you that um, there are times, you know, like what the quotes we read earlier about redemption, where there's these glimpses of redemption, mm. of unification, or a spiritual experience, or those types of things that give you that sense. But the land of Israel is um, it's a uh, it's incredibly complex mm. and particularly as immigrants that have come from, you know, the United States or Europe or other places coming here it, in some instances does not make a lot of rational sense. Mm. Cost of living is high. The complexities of navigating in a, in a world and a, a, a worldview that is in some instances backwards compared to what we're used to in our Western experiences, it's very difficult. Hmm. Even in our own staff and family here in Israel, you know, just a short few days into this most uh, recent experience with the, with the Gaza uh, situation, the, the Simchat Torah war, I had to give a little pep rally to uh, our team here and our family of why, why we're here. Hmm. Um, and again, I found inspiration from this book. Um, and I and I want to take the time, rather than summarizing this, give me just one second to read this, this statement. Yeah. It says, Whoever comes to Eretz Israel only to eat of its fruits and satiate himself with its goodness can expect sooner or later to be disappointed and face difficulties. The reason for this is that Eretz Israel is one of the three things that is acquired through suffering. This is a quote from the, the Talmud or a reference to the Talmud. And a person is willing to suffer afflictions only for the sake of an objective that is loftier than the needs and desires of his body. When someone comes to Eretz Israel for the materialistic reasons and is faced with difficulties, he begins to question the benefit of remaining in his ancestral homeland. The Zionism that is anchored in the words of the Hazal is the Zionism of redemption, the redemption of the body and the soul. The afflictions of Eretz Israel are worthwhile when one realizes that living there is the only guarantee for the revelation of the Shekhinah in this world. So this quote, you know, when we're, when we're under a situation of duress and we say, well, why did we come to Israel? Did we come to Israel so we can eat of its fruits, so we can be expats and, you know, experience Jewish life outside of America? What was our intentions? If, if we don't have intentions of living for a higher ideal, a loftier goal, then we're going to be disappointed. We have to realize that we're here and our lives here represent a part of that redemptive process. So, you know, for our life here and our community and our family, these words uh, brought resolve because mm. we do realize that we're here for a greater, uh, a greater purpose, a greater intention. And, you know, I, I would like to see 
how, how can we spin this statement around to our Gentile constituency? What is the purpose of you connecting with Israel? Is it so you can, you know, eat of its fruits? Mm. So you can, you know, know the Bible better than your Christian friend? So you can keep certain mitzvot and be uh, perceived to be spiritually uh, more enlightened or more observant than others? If that's your motivation, you're only going to be disappointed. Yeah. Gentiles that attach themselves to Israel have to understand that they're part of a loftier goal, that they themselves are part of that redemption process. And just like uh, the land of Israel is acquired through difficulties, Gentiles attaching themselves to Israel, they themselves also experience difficulties and hardships and rejections. And as they align themselves with the people of Israel, particularly in the culture that we live in today, with the animosity and the hatred. You know, I bet you if you were to walk down the street in some United States cities right now with an Israeli flag t-shirt saying, I support Israel, you would probably get spit on, yelled at, and potentially assaulted hmm. for your allegiance with the people of Israel in the culture that we live in today. Yeah, And I, you know, Israel has experienced you know, thousands of years of exile. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a way that Christians can get a sense as well of experiencing that exile and the, and the pain of exile alongside Israel. Yeah. Yeah. This is a realization I came to some years ago, which is that um, the, the classical Christian view, the traditional Christian view of sort of supersessionism and dominionism says um, you know, God is God is blessing the Christians and cursing the Jews, and you know we we made it and they didn't, and we get all you know all these material benefits and blessings and goodness from the earth while Jewish people suffer, and you know out of this is is born even these these messed up theologies like the prosperity gospel and so forth that I. I I'm sure none of our listeners are, uh, believe in in that, but that's sort of the 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 most uh, messed up like manifestation of this theology. But just this idea that you know the kingdom in some sense is here and we're enjoying its fruit, and you know that's I think that's all completely wrong. And and like you said, we are or should be experiencing the exile along with the Jewish people. You know, we are we are citizens of a better kingdom that's coming. And we're not in this world for material benefit and material gain. And we're not in this theological paradigm, like you said, to be smarter or to have more knowledge or puff ourselves up over our our brethren and in, in, in Messiah. But instead, you know, like 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 Jewish people, we attain what we attain through suffering. I forget who it was. I, I feel like it was a rabbi that said this, but um, you know, if, if nothing bad happens to you for two weeks, then Hashem has given up on you, and you, you're no longer going to have any spiritual growth, right? There's a, there's a sense in which that our, our mission in life is going to involve suffering, and if it doesn't, if we're if we're in it for some other reason, then our faith is, is going to be hollow. It's going to be empty. So what you're telling me, Jacob, is that Hashem loves me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very special, <laughs> specific um, love just for you. I want to just 
go back to some practical things before we kind of um, jump off here. One of the things you said made me think of another comment from uh, Rav Cook, hmm. where he talks about Zionism. So Zionism, modern day Zionism, you know, was really established in the late 1800s under the kind of the direction of Theodore Herzl. Theodore Herzl was a secular European. Mm-hmm. I don't want to speak to his true spiritual state. I don't know it, but for all intents and purposes, let's you know put him into the category of agnostic or atheist or something. Yeah, his motivations for creating the state of Israel were not spiritually motivated. Were not were not biblically prophetically motivated. But Rabbi Cook uh, spoke well of him, and he spoke well of of the Zionism vision that that Herzl put in place. But he 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 speaks of it in terms of a body. He says Zionism Herzlian Zionism kind of created a str- a body, arms, legs, a head, mm. a, a, a physical entity. He says it's our job to now put a soul into that. Yeah. To to put like spirituality in that, and those things combined is what will create a a, a community worthy of redemption. Yeah, boy, that does that. If that doesn't remind me of a, of, a, of Ezekiel's prophecy of the the dry bones, you know, you get this mm-hmm. structure, this body before before it has a soul, and maybe we're in this this short little window in between those two things happening, which is you know what a time to be alive. So you mentioned you mentioned practical things, and um, like we mentioned before, you know, we're all praying for Israel, but there's very little. It seems that there's very little we can do here in the states, whether it's to uh, to alleviate suffering or to contribute in any meaningful way. But you know, from your from your perspective, what can we do here out, outside the land for the Jewish people today, in in Israel and outside of Israel, who are suffering as a result of this war? On this last Shabbat, I was doing some reading, and I came across a statement somewhere that said something about defenders. And then I started thinking about our defenders and I started thinking about people outside of Israel. What can they do? Mm -hmm. So I came up with this little catchphrase that I thought was pretty, pretty cool. It was defending our defenders. Mm. I think the posture of our constituency or those that, that care about the trifecta of the land, the people and the scriptures of Israel. I think the best thing that they can do to help Israel at this time is be informed and have simple facts mm. um, and updated news. I have several friends right now that I'm following on on, twi- on Twitter that are Zionistically oriented Messianic Jew uh, Messianic Gentiles that are absolutely just going to town on Twitter, and every time something is posted, they post a counter fact mm. as simple and as clear as possible to try to be a voice into that false narrative that's being put forward. Mm. So I think I think being informed uh, with simple facts, updated on the news from quality sources, mm. and being able to speak into uh, stuff, uh, situations is incredibly important. As we go back, as I reflect on the top of this podcast, uh, the biggest war that we're possibly in is on the war of misinformation and disinf- disin- disinformation. Yeah. I would also encourage our our Christian listeners and those that are connected into the broader Christian community. I think you absolutely have to demand statements of defense and support from your local pastors and politicians. Mm. I think that that you have to see where they stand 
and ask them to make uh, some type of public statement of solidarity with Israel at this time. Mm. I think one of the biggest areas that that Christians and our constituency need to be strong in is an understanding of the history of replacement theology. Oh yeah. I when 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 D. Thomas Lancaster asked me to do this podcast, I first resisted because I didn't want to come on and talk about the war. It's like who who am I to speak about the war? Um, who am I to speak about the details of the news or, or whatever? I I don't know more than than the local quality newspapers or news sites. Mm. But as I invested time into developing um, our talking points, I realized that First Street Design does have a very, very critical and important mission in this war, particularly as we talk about that trifecta of the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel. Yeah. There's not much that our people can do about defending the land. You can pray for the peace of Israel. You can pray for our soldiers. You can send financial support, those types of things. In terms of like the people of Israel, Here's a strong recommendation. Don't be an anti-Semite. There you go. And politicians that have anti-Semitic leanings or postures, reject those politicians. Mm. Root that out. But where our work shines and where our constituency can flourish is in that, that category of the scriptures of Israel. Mm. We are on the front lines of helping Christians repudiate replacement theology mm-hmm affirm Jewish continuity in terms of its uh, religion as well as the Torah and that's what our that's what our thir- our past 32 years of our mission have has been all about mm. so what first Roots design needs to do during this time is we need to stay focused on our mission of a message to the nations that's affirming the continued validity of the Torah helping the nations come alongside as kingdom partners to the people of Israel and push that message forward. So uh, start a Torah club. Start a Hayasod class. Hayasod the foundation, the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel. Go on the front lines. Have hard conversations with your Christian friends. Push the envelope. Push buttons. Force people to reconcile Christian theology back to a proper theology that is aligned correctly with God's uh, continued uh, promises, prophetic promises to the people of Israel. Hmm. Yeah, that's so important, and it and it really does. I believe that you know every every Christian who realigns their theology in that way and who becomes a staunch advocate for the Jewish people and um, repudiates replacement theology, like you said, I think that brings us closer to redemption. Because because what because what happens when when all the Christians are now now realize their connection with the Jewish people and the, there's a united front of Christians saying, look, we were wrong to try to pull the Jewish people away from the Torah, and we believe that that Jesus Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah who came to restore the Jewish people, not destroy the Jewish people. I mean, they're what a powerful statement and what um what a step toward the ultimate reconciliation of yeshua with his people that would represent so it is it's it's a long mission i mean it is sometimes feels like emptying the ocean with a spoon right but it's important and every step that we make is meaningful and brings us closer 
to the redemption. Now, you mentioned donations. And, you know, every time anything happens anywhere in the world, a million people pop up and say, give, a, give us money and we'll make sure it gets to the right place. But the thing about Israel is, you know, this there's it there's been such a long history of people in Israel needing support and needing help that there are already organizations that have good reputations, right? Yeah, you know, I I've been a bit um, uh, I've been a bit <laughs> I don't know if I've ever used this term before, but I think it's appropriate now. But I've been a bit triggered recently <laughs> over this past twelve days, yeah, where. I see organizations that have nothing to do with Israel historically mm. that all of a sudden are sending out donation appeals uh, to create, uh, you know, to bring money to Israel. Yeah. I just find that, I find that very concerning. I think there's enough organizations here, as you mentioned, that have been long established operating in these fields of expertise and service to the broader community. And they've been doing it for, you know, 30, 40 years, because that's their calling, that's their gifting, that's their uniqueness. Mm. There's no need to give necessarily through third-party organizations. And I think that we need to be really careful and slow with donations, so to speak, in in giving it through agencies or agents. Just, you know, here's the needs. We need uh, funds for our IDF and support of our military efforts. So, there's an organization called Friends of the IDF. Give to them. They're a strong, well-established in an organization of integrity. United Hatsala. They are a service organization that uh, is immediately on the sites giving uh, free medical care to people in need. Mm-hmm. Mo- uh, Magan Davida Dome. Uh, the other day I went and gave blood. I stood in line for five hours to give a half a pint of blood. Mm-hmm. There were thousands of Israelis there. That entire event, which was here in Jerusalem, was multiplied probably 20, 30 times throughout the country, all under the banner of Magan Davida Dome. There were tens of thousands of people giving blood. Most of the people that were taking the blood, servicing the process, helping, assisting, giving security and all that, were all volunteers or paid individuals under Magan Davida Dome. They've been doing that forever. Give to them. But you know, I think we all need to have a, a heart of of giving and and um, contributing in different ways. Um, and I hope that with God's help, um, our the needs of the people of Israel will be met. One of the roles of the nations is to help uh, support that and give, uh, as Paul says, give tithes to Jerusalem, so to speak, mm. and support the well being of of the Jewish people. And links to all those organizations will be in the podcast description. Well. Boaz, I know that your time is incredibly valuable and the situation on the ground over there is always changing. And we just want to say thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for giving us so much of your time and keeping us up to date and giving us this leadership and this this spiritual direction in this time of great crisis. And thank you. It was an honor to be here. And may, may he who makes peace in his heights make peace upon us and make peace upon all of Israel. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. 
FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Jacob Franzak. Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea.